Well, welcome one and all. Um, we're going to take a look this morning at the second of, of a series of texts leading up to Easter, text from the Old Testament book of Isaiah. So I invite you to turn with me in the book of Isaiah to chapter 11, Isaiah chapter 11. We're going to take a look at verses 1 through 9. And if you're using the church Bible, that's going to be on page 575. Uh, In God's great wisdom, there is a, a, a timeliness in our coming to Isaiah 11 on this particular Sunday in the aftermath of something that happened last week. Before I get there, though, again, we're looking at Isaiah. We're looking at Jesus in Isaiah. Jesus in, as I call it, the fifth gospel. Because Isaiah is a book, has so much to say about Jesus the Messiah. The book is filled with inspiring descriptions of him as the long-promised Messiah, the the much-awaited son of David. And today we come to just a, a beautiful poem. It's just an exquisite poem about Messiah, Jesus. And it's well-timed for us to come to this. I mean, this is a poem. Let me just, before I go there, let me just point out the closing of this poem is a beautiful description, as I'll read it in a couple minutes, of the peace that will occur on earth when Jesus returns to reign. And it's such a vivid picture that it's inspired paintings down through the centuries. And on the back of the program, I've given you a copy of perhaps the best known of those paintings by Edward Hicks, an American, 1830, called The Peaceable Kingdom. I saw this picture before I was a Christian. And I remember looking at the picture and saying to myself, man, those Christians are really weird, you know? But then also simultaneously think, boy, but if there were ever an opportunity for something like this to happen on on the face of this world, I'm in, I'm there. Isaiah describes it, chapter 11. Now, as I said, it's well-timed that we've come to this text on this particular day. And I say that because of a news story that broke a week ago. And it has been kind of overshadowed by all the stories about the coronavirus. You may have missed it. I didn't. It broke my heart. Here's one of the headlines of the story. Jean Vanier, once seen as a Nobel or a sainthood candidate, accused of abusive sexual relationships. Vanier is not as well known in our circles. He's a Catholic, Canadian Catholic theologian. He died about a year ago. In uh, the mid-20th century, he launched what has become Lark International, a worldwide organization that serves adults with intellectual disabilities. It's really a ministry that has reached an at-risk group. And Vanier has, for decades, been kind of almost the poster child of a leader with integrity, respected, esteemed, revered. 
And now posthumously, he's disgraced. Credible evidence disclosed in a report that was put together not by outsiders, but by people from within Lark International, within the ministry itself, credible evidence that he perpetrated coercive sexual relationships with six women on the staff of Lark. When I saw this, my heart sank. One more Christian leader who seemed so untouched by so many scandals. One more Christian leader who apparently abused his position, who failed to deal with that, that uh, intersection of sexuality and power and spirituality, an intersection that everyone needs to deal with especially leaders. One more prominent, internationally known Christian leader who has publicly, spectacularly in that sense, fallen. Now there are different and important dimensions of a response to this news. I mean, first of all, as Christians, we should be asking about the victims. Are they being cared for? How can this sort of thing be avoided in the future? And those questions are being asked and answered. There's also a gospel response of self-examination. What about me? Would I give in? Am I abusing the leadership that I have? Am I lying to myself about things in my life? Then there's an organizational review that any leader would want to make sure would happen. I mean, we've done that in the, in, at Stonehill here in, in the recent past, reviewing our policies, protocols, uh, uh, channels of communication around these issues of sexuality and etc. But there's yet another dimension. And it's this next dimension that I want to focus on this morning. And that's the impact of news like this on your own faith. And the disillusionment that can set in when this kind of thing happens. I mean, you can't help but ask the question, why are so many Christian leaders falling so spectacularly? Why does the church seem no different than the world? Maybe even worse than the world because the church pretends to be different, pretends to be better. Is my faith well-founded? Maybe the deepest question of all. Is the gospel really the power of God? Isaiah 11 verses 1 through 9, this, this poem that I've talked about. This text provides what I'm going to call emergency first aid for disillusioned faith. Faith that's been disillusioned by the failure of Christian leaders. I'm going to read the text, then we'll get into it. There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, 
and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. And the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. His delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. He shall not judge by what his eyes see or decide disputes by what his ears hear. But with righteousness he shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. And he shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth and with the breath of his lips he shall kill the wicked. Righteousness shall be the belt of his waist and faithfulness the belt of his loins. The wolf shall dwell with the lamb and the leopard shall lie down with the young goat and the calf and the lion and the fattened calf together. And a little child shall lead them. The cow and the bear shall graze Their young shall lie down together, and the lion shall eat straw like the ox. The nursing child shall play over the hole of the cobra, and the weaned child shall put his hand on the adder's den, and it shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain, for the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as waters cover the sea. This is God's word. This text is all about Jesus, the Messiah, Jesus Christ, Jesus, the son of David. He's introduced without much transition from the end of chapter 10. It's kind of a really kind of abrupt transition. He's introduced in verse 1 as a shoot from the stump of Jesse. It's a picture. A shoot from a stump. Chapter 10 concluded with one of Isaiah's powerful pictures. I mean, Isaiah's a brilliant poet. Uh, his, his, His way of saying things is often highly visual, and at the end of chapter 10, he's given us one of his memorable pictures. The picture is of human pride and power and arrogance like a forest of trees. And God's come in and he's cut down the whole forest. All the trees have been lopped down. You look around at this scene of just stumps. You know, all the, the human pride, especially expressed in Assyria, a nation of the time then, just destroyed, flattened. So you see all these stumps and you're looking around at all these stumps and over here on the side, there's one stump and you look at it and there's a little bit of a green growth, a little shoot coming up from the stump. And it's a shoot from the stump of Jesse. Now, Jesse was the father of King David. So really what Isaiah is seeing here is is this is a shoot from the the stump, the, the line, the dynasty of King David, but he doesn't say David. In kind of a, a rare move, 
he refers to that line as Jesse. Why does he put it that way? Why does he go back one generation to Jesse? And the answer is in the preceding chapters. The life, the social life, the community life, the, the spiritual health in Judah at that time had become so corrupt under the king named Ahaz, so corrupt under Ahaz, that the notion of a line or a dynasty from the house of David, Ahaz was a descendant of David, that had become laughable, joke, unbelievable. Isaiah himself said, chapter 7, verse 13, to King Ahaz, Oh, hear this, house of David. Isn't it enough that you weary the patience of others, including me, the prophet? Why must you weary God also? And so, when Isaiah refers to the Messiah as coming from the stump of Jesse, he's, he's saying there needs to be a totally new, fresh start here. A new shoot from the same father. A, a new David from Jesse. This is what Isaiah is promising here. The true David. And the shoot is Jesus of Nazareth. In this poem, Jesus is presented as the king that Isaiah and his contemporaries we're hoping for, we're longing for, really needed. He's presented as the king that the world hopes for. He's presented as the leader of the church that we hope for, that you're hoping for, that I'm hoping for. In other words, let me put it this way. This text belongs in what I'll call your spiritual first aid kit. And what I mean by that is a set of texts uh, put somewhere so you can quickly refer to it. A set of texts that help you when your faith is weak, when you're confused, when you don't know how to respond, when you seem to be losing touch with God, when, when Jesus seems distant. A set of texts that, I don't know, you, you've got on a bookmark in your Bible, you've got it on Evernote on, on your smartphone or written in the front or the back of your Bible, somewhere where you can go right to it and say, oh, here's the text. In this case, here's the text when I'm disillusioned with leaders. Here it is, Isaiah 11. When you're disillusioned with leaders, whether they're government leaders, or Christian church leaders, this text can help wash away that disillusionment. It can help to cleanse the wound and the hurt when someone falls. It can help drain away the doubt. Because this text takes you back to God. It takes you back to God's promise. Because God is promising here in this text a leader, the leader that we're all longing for. The leader that the world needs. The leader that the church needs. The leader that the church deserves. The leader that you and I need and deserve by the grace of God.
Now, the whole text is like a single promise from God. This leader is coming. But in order to work with it, I'm going to kind of break it up into three promises. I want to take you through verses 1 through 3, then verses 4 through 4 and 5, and then 6 through 9, and show you the three promises about Jesus the leader that are being made in this text. So uh, promise number 1, verses 1 through 3, is that Jesus is the leader whose character is the real thing. You know, recent statistic from late last year is at 82% of young adults. By the way, this is a global statistic. This is not a U.S.-based statistic. Global statistic, 82% of young adults ages 18 to 35 affirm that society is facing a leadership crisis right now because there aren't enough good leaders. I don't think I needed a statistic to persuade you of that. But there it is. We want leaders with character. Enter Jesus, marked by integrity, by genuine spirituality, by reverence and fear of God the Father. Look at the text. Look at how he's described. Verse 2. The Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him. Well, let's just stop right there. That's the first thing about his character that said, the Spirit of the Lord will rest upon him. I mean, the then king, Ahaz, he had none of God's spirit. He was spiritually bankrupt. He pretended to be pious at certain times, but he wasn't. He was conniving and crafty, filled with doubt and rebellion. Messiah, Messiah Jesus, the Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him. Not just visit, not just sit for a period of time. No, rest upon him. I think of what John the Baptist says as John the Baptist thinks about the baptism that he had with Jesus, where he baptized Jesus in the Jordan River and the Holy Spirit came down upon Jesus. Here's what John the Baptist said after that baptism, subsequently. He says, this is his testimony, I saw the Spirit descend from heaven like a dove on Jesus. And it remained on Jesus. Now, it didn't just come down and fly away. No, no. It came down and it remained. It dwelt. It rested on Jesus of Nazareth. And so I have seen, this is his testimony, and I bear witness to you that Jesus is the Son of God. He's the real thing. He's a genuine article, the truly spiritual leader that we long for. He's it. And because of that spirit, look what Isaiah goes on to say. Because of that spirit, Jesus has, uh, he has, first of all, the spirit of wisdom and understanding. In other words, he's got the mental abilities, the mind necessary to know how to lead wisdom and understanding. He has the, the necessary skills to put things into practice. He's got counsel and might. He has... A true experienced knowledge of God, not just head knowledge. Well, I can tell you what God's like. No, no, no. Truly experienced knowledge, familiarity, relationship with God. Isaiah says he has the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. In fact, his delight 
shall be in the fear of the Lord. This is what Jesus loved. To trust and fear the Father. This was how he defined success. To trust and to fear the Father. What a beautiful character description. This character description can help you to come to grips when leaders disappoint you. When I was a young pastor, I'm in my 35th year here, so we're talking when I'm like my second, third year here. Westerly Road Church. I had my, my, my pastoral hero. I think we need heroes. That's another sermon. But I had my pastoral hero. His name was Gordon MacDonald. Gordon MacDonald, I loved his sermons. I would listen to his sermons on cassette tape. I read his book, Ordering Your Private World. I mean, it's a book that I will still recommend today. I mean, the title tells it all. It gave such great practical advice to me on how to shepherd, so to speak, my, my schedule, my church demands, my family demands, my personal life, ordering your private wealth. I mean, that was just so crucial for me. And you know what? His church was right near where I grew up, Massachusetts. This is a, this is a Massachusetts-based pastor. What, could, what more could I want, you know? It was just all there for me. He was like my hero. And then, boy, he stepped down from the pastorate. He had a period of interim. And during that period of interim, he acknowledged, confessed, admitted that he had been involved in an affair, a longstanding affair. And I was crushed, crushed when I read that. Just crushed. I needed this text. I needed the voice that it gave to me that there, there, it's legitimate to have a desire for there to be a leader whose personal life, whose character would be marked by the Spirit of God. Would be a person of integrity, of wisdom and understanding and counsel and might and knowledge and the fear of the Lord. I needed this text to assure me that God got that. He understood that. And that God would provide that leader. And that leader would be, was, and will be one day, Jesus. Jesus of Nazareth. And only Jesus. This text was gospel first aid to me. It helped to trigger the process. A slow shift from the hurt and the anger and the disillusionment that I felt with McDonald's confession to a clear sense of God's promise here and a rekindling of faith. There's a second promise that God's making in this text. Second promise. And that is Jesus is the leader whose priorities are in order. Now, if you know me, you know that just by nature, I'm not a particularly political person. I follow politics because I want to lead you well. 
But by nature, I'm, I'm just not super political. Having said that, let me say that one of my frustrations year after year, decade after decade with politics is it just bothers me. It bothers me to see elected officials, representatives, whether in Washington, D.C., or in Trenton, or when I used to live in Massachusetts, in Boston, who worried more about the party than about doing what was right. It just bothered me. Verses 3 through 5, we're given a description of how Jesus will lead, and his priorities are right How he rules, verses 3 through 5, is as sterling, as impeccable, as beautiful as his character, verses 1 through 3. Because he's not using his position and his power for his own self-aggrandizement, for his own little program. Look at the text. Verse 3, second statement. He shall not judge by what his eyes see or decide disputes by what his ears see. So, no, he's not going to be superficial in his judgments. He's going to be careful to know exactly what any situation is. And let me just give a pastoral sidebar here. For any of you, and I know that there are some out here for whom this applies, For any of you who have been misjudged by authorities, who feel like you've not been heard by those in power, this statement is healing balm. God gets that. And he's promising you that one day there will be a leader who will judge, not by the superficials, but will really listen and know and understand carries on. With righteousness, verse 4, he shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. Now that word judge there, um, when we hear the word judge in English, we're thinking, you know, a, a judge in a courtroom who renders a decision about a particular case. And that's certainly part of the, the Hebrew word behind this word judge. But the Hebrew word is bigger. When you read, for instance, you've got a whole book in the Old Testament called the Judges. These were not people who sat in courts. They were rulers, leaders. That's the idea of the Hebrew word. So really what he's saying here in verse 4 is, with righteousness he shall lead on behalf of the poor. And he will decide with equity for the meek of the earth, the marginalized, those who don't get the attention in in the normal course of things. Verse 4, he shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth. And with the breath of his lips, he shall kill the wicked. In other words, um, he will, uh, there will be a moral force to his words. What he says will strike, will carry weight. Because they're true and accurate. And they come from someone who is true and accurate. And he shall pronounce judgment on evildoers. And if he's, going to leap, if he's going to introduce a kingdom, like we read about in verses 6 and following, then he's going to have to deal with evildoers. He's going to have to judge them, punish them. He will conquer God's enemies. Verse 5, 
righteousness, doing before God and others what's right. Righteousness, justice, shall be the belt of his waist. And faithfulness, the idea of that is is consistency, reliability. In the Old Testament, that's, that's the point of faithfulness. You can count on the person. You can bank on the person to be today what the person was yesterday. Consistency, dependability, and righteousness shall be the belt, the, the thing that holds all of what he does together. It's not unreasonable for us, made in God's image, to expect leaders to lead like this. But we live in a broken world and it's not going to happen until Jesus comes. And when, when it doesn't happen, it can be painful. Uh, let me quote from a guy named Leif Anderson. Uh, Leif Anderson uh, had to pick up the leadership pieces back in 2006 when the president of the National Association of Evangelicals, Ted Haggard, had a spectacular, in the bad sense, spectacular fall. Leith Anderson had to, in a period of two hours, make the decision, decide whether or not he was going to be the interim successor and pick up the pieces in the aftermath of this way too public national attention fall of Haggard. Here's what he writes. Trust is damaged when this happens, when people uh, don't rule the way they should, when they don't lead the way they do. Trust is damaged. Emotions are raw. Anger mixes with hurt. And often those who mislead move on with their own agenda and they leave the damage for someone else to fix. That captures it. We need to be healed when these things happen. And there is in verses 3 through 5 all kinds of healing balm. And again, because first of all, these verses, they give voice to our longings. They affirm that it is right for us to expect that leaders would lead this way. But they also promise us It's not yet, but there is one coming who will do it. So reattach your hope. Reattach your faith to Jesus. Only Jesus. Verses 6 through 9. The unforgettable picture. Third promise being made in this picture. That Jesus will bring true shalom, the Hebrew word shalom, peace, will bring true shalom to the world. And shalom in the Old Testament has the idea of peace and safety and flourishing. So this closing picture, and you heard me read it 15 minutes ago, wolf shall dwell with the lamb, the leopard shall lie down with the young goat, the calf and the lion and the fattened calf together. A little child shall lead them. There's innocence. There's peaceableness. There's beauty. There's harmony. Isaiah is giving us this picture for us to have it in our imagination. He's saying, imagine this. Think about it. Set it in your mind. 
This is what the world will be like one day, the day when Messiah Jesus returns and rules and his impact covers the surface of the world like waters cover the sea. Now, Isaiah is saying this at a point of great division among God's people. Judah, the southern kingdom, and Israel, the northern kingdom, had been at odds. In fact, Israel, the northern kingdom, had recently attacked the southern kingdom. And Isaiah is in part, when he writes this, he's holding out the hope that when the true ruler comes, when Messiah comes, that Judah and Israel will be restored. Their unity will be brought back. Their divisions will be healed. In fact, he says that explicitly, propositionally, in verse 13. But this picture is even broader than that. The promises here are about the whole world and not just Judah and Israel. For the earth, verse 11, will be filled with the knowledge of God as waters cover the sea. That is the earth, countries, cultures, peoples, communities, neighborhoods, families, the animal kingdom, children, all, all will love and honor the Lord fully. The world will be filled with the knowledge of, the, of God as waters cover the sea. Fully, everywhere. And in that time, there will therefore be this shalom, peace, peace in every way. The wolf will lie down with the lamb, figuratively and literally. There'll be safety. The child, uh, verse 8, shall put his hand on the adder's den and the parent doesn't have to swoop in and say, get away, there's a poisonous snake in there because there'll be no harm. Everything will be safe. Peace and safety and flourishing. Best way to capture that in the text is to, is to point out all the verbs, verbs of flourishing in this text. Verbs like dwell and lie down and lead and graze and play and not be hurt and not be destroyed and instead be filled. Flourishing, safety, and peace. And why? Not because of human ingenuity. Rather because of Jesus who through his death ended evil. With the breath of his lips he slayed, he shall slay the wicked. With the breath of his lips when he died, it is finished. That slate destroyed all the enemies of God. Evil and warfare and hatred and death and sin. Jesus has condemned God's enemies. And through his life, he's brought Life and immortality and this beautiful, peaceable kingdom to light, a certainty, a promise. There are many, many times that the world is so disappointing when the church 
fails, when leaders crash and burn, and when faith is disillusioned. And at those times, you and I need gospel-first aid. This is a text in that kit. Get to Isaiah 11 in those times. Remember this text. Bookmark it. Put its page number in the front of your Bible. Do what you need to do to come back to this text when your faith gets bruised and disillusioned because a leader has fallen. Because leadership hasn't done what it should have done. And when the world just seems like going, 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 gone. Allow this text to affirm your desire for a leader of integrity and of the Spirit. Allow it to lead you back to Jesus. Allow it to wash away the disappointment. Allow it to renew your faith in God's promise that the Messiah and only the Messiah, Jesus, only Jesus, is the leader that we really long for, that we need, that you need, that I need, that the church needs, that the world needs. He He is the shoot from the stump of Jesse. Let's pray. Father, to you be praised for a a beautiful piece like this. The very kind of thing that can inspire us just by reading it and receiving it into our souls with, with faith. For those here who have been disillusioned, in faith. May this text bring about healing. Use this text in our lives. Use this text in the church around the world and help us to, to put our faith afresh in Jesus. The shoot from the stump of Jesse, the promised king, our leader. Amen.